Hello and welcome to this episode of CFA Institute's Take 15 series. I'm Sam Lum, Director of Private Wealth and Capital Markets at CFA Institute. I'm joined here today at the Australia Investment Conference in Sydney by Professor Michael Pettis from the Peking University Graduate School of Management. Professor Pettis is also a Senior Associate at the Carnegie Foundation for International Peace. Our topic of discussion today is going to focus on issues and outlook relating to China's economic progress. Michael, thanks for being with us today. Sure, my pleasure. Yeah. China has been producing GDP growth of around 8% more or less in the past decade, while keeping inflation at reasonable levels. The global financial crisis had not really seemed to present any major setbacks. In retrospect, what are your views on this rather enviable economic growth track record? Well, the, the, the global financial crisis, in fact, produced a, um, a, a very big effect on China. Growth rates from the beginning of 2008 to 2009 pretty much collapsed. In fact, a lot of people believe that in the first quarter of 2009, growth rates may have been close to zero or even negative. And the way Beijing responded to that is with a massive increase in investment. And um, the problem is that if investment is economically viable, then that response would have no cost. On the contrary, it would increase national wealth. But the, there is, a, uh, I, I guess, a consensus that much of the investment in the last two to three years, and I would argue much of the investment since the end of the 1990s, has been misallocated. In other words, it's been put into projects that are not economically viable. In which, um, in which the total value created is less than the cost of the investment. And if that's the case, then what we should be seeing is a very, very rapid and unsustainable increase in debt. And I think um, for, for many years, people were fairly skeptical about the idea of an unsustainable increase in debt. But since the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, um, I think people are now much more concerned and much more focused on debt. Debt levels are rising very, very quickly. Uh, a lot of it continues to be hidden debt um, or debt in the form, for example, of uh, local government financing vehicles. But this is the key worry that I think China has now or China should have. And that is that like every single country that's followed a similar growth model, um, the risk is always that at some point you reach a, a debt crisis, um, a level of extremely high debt, which ends up stopping the growth model. Michael, managing a country and an economy of size and diversity of China's is certainly not a simple task. What do you see as the key challenges for policymakers at this time and going forward? The key challenge uh, for economic policy, um, I think, is pretty well understood. The Chinese economy is, uh, as Premier Wen said, very unbalanced. In fact, it's more than very unbalanced. It's the most unbalanced we've ever seen in history. And at the source of the imbalances, is very, very low consumption share of GDP. Um, the China, China began the century with consumption at around 46% of GDP, which is uh, not unprecedented, but it's very low. Typically, the low-consuming countries that followed a similar model as China have consumption in the 50 to 55% range. The world, on average, consumes around 60 to 65% of GDP. Um, China began the century at 46%, which is very, very low. By the middle of the decade, it had reached 40%, which is unprecedented. We've never seen such a low number. And um, so 
uh, policymakers understood correctly that they needed to raise the consumption share of GDP. But that's proven to be very, very difficult. And in fact, in the next five years, consumption declined even further as a share of GDP. We believe that in 2010, consumption may have hit 34% of GDP, which is in many ways an astonishing number. So China needs to rebalance. It needs to increase the, uh, the importance of consumption as a driver of growth. Um, it's been trying to do that for at least five years, um, and it's been very difficult to do that. But now it is all the more urgent that it does so. And the way it does so, uh, unfortunately, is going to require reversing the types of policies that led to the very, very rapid growth. It's going to require raising interest rates significantly, raising the value of the currency significantly, and raising wages much more quickly than productivity. Uh, and all of those things will undermine the, uh, the, very, uh, the very sources of the rapid growth. But if they don't do so, then they're overly reliant on investment, which I think by now most people are very worried about, and of course overly reliant on the trade surplus. Mm -hmm. And if the rest of the world is not able to absorb a Chinese trade surplus, um, then they can't really count on a growing trade surplus to help them out. What is your take on the dramatic market reactions surrounding the U.S. credit rating downgrade, the new commitment by the Fed to keep rates low for a long time, and issues with the sovereign credits and banking sector in Europe? Well, for me, what's, what's surprising is not that the markets have done so badly in the last week or so. To me, what's surprising is, is that the markets did reasonably well in 2009 and were more or less stable in 2010. As I see it, the world has not, uh, has not emerged from the imbalances that led to the uh, crisis of 2007-2008. In fact, in many cases, the imbalances are actually worse. The U.S. has done some rebalancing. Um, corporate balance sheets are in very, very, very good shape. Uh, corporate debts come down a lot. Household debts come down a lot. It's been partly compensated for by the rise in government debt. But in the rest of the world, it's hard to see any evidence of rebalancing. Um, in Europe, the imbalances that have created the euro crisis are still there. And in fact, I'm, I'm pretty certain we're going to see very, very sharp contraction in demand in Europe as countries like Spain and Greece and Italy, et cetera, adjust. Um, and I'm also pretty certain that several of those countries are going to be forced to leave the euro and will probably even default on the debt. So we still have a big European problem. And of course, in China, not only have we not resolved the imbalances in the last three or four years, but they've gotten measurably worse. So as I see it, the, uh, the world has a real demand problem. Um, there's going to be little demand growth in the US. Uh, there's almost no or very little consumption growth, which is the key. There's almost no consumption in China. Total Chinese consumption is barely above total French consumption. Um, and there are very good reasons why it's going to be difficult to bring that up. And Europe, of course, we're not going to see any consumption growth. So we've got four or five years of very weak demand in, in, uh, ahead of us. And I don't think the market was uh, sufficiently pricing that in. So I think the U.S. Uh, debt downgrade, in a way, was a reminder and a signal that we haven't really made any of the necessary adjustments. And uh, so I expect weak stock and asset markets for the next several years, uh, regardless of what happens in the next week or two. And how about renminbi internationalization and the offshore centers? What opportunities are there for Australia and other Asia-Pacific countries? And 
How important a role is this going to play in promoting future economic progress in China? Well, there, China? there isn't really any renminbi internationalization. That's one of the big myths that's based in part on speculative inflows. So if you look at the internationalization of the renminbi, um, people say that a very uh, a, a, a growing amount of trade, Chinese trade, is now denominated in renminbi, and that indicates the tremendous interest the world has for renminbi-denominated trade. But if you look at the numbers carefully, you'll see that's not true. Um, the, of, of, of the increase in renminbi-denominated trade, 93% of it uh, occurs through Chinese imports, and only 7% of it occurs through Chinese exports. And even that 7% is overstated, because a lot of it represents not Chinese end sales in renminbi, but rather Chinese sales from onshore subsidiaries to offshore subsidiaries, which are then sold on in dollars. So it really hasn't, it hasn't represented uh, internationalization of, uh, of, of, uh, of the renminbi. It hasn't represented trade being denominated in renminbi. Um, so most of it is on the import side. And, and so you sort of wonder why are imports, why is all of the renminbi denominated trade on the import side rather than on the export side? Mm -hmm. And the answer is pretty obvious because if, if countries sell to China in renminbi, um, they end up, and, and they denominate the trade in renminbi, they end up with renminbi deposits in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. If they buy from China, they end up short renminbi. And the truth is nobody wants to be short renminbi, everybody wants to be long renminbi because they expect the renminbi to appreciate. So the internationalization of the trade reflects not so much a desire to trade in renminbi, but rather a desire to speculate uh, uh, on, on the rise of the renminbi. Um, so, to me, it's a little bit um, ingenuous to think of this as representing a, really a desire on the part of the world to trade in renminbi. To me, it simply reflects what we already know, that there are huge speculative inflows into China to take advantage of an appreciating renminbi. Mm -hmm. To sum up, what are the key takeaways for investment professionals in Australia and other Asia-Pacific countries? Um, it, within Beijing, there is a small but growing consensus that the adjustment is going to be difficult and that growth rates are going to slow down significantly. We're starting to hear um, some of the think tank policy advisors and even some government officials talk about growth rates of 5, 6, 7 percent. I think that their, their reasoning is correct, but I think they're overly optimistic. I think growth rates may slow to significantly more than that which is not necessarily bad for China, not necessarily destabilizing for China, because if much slower growth occurs with real rebalancing, we will see a, a faster growth in household income and household consumption. Um, but if there is a significant adjustment in GDP growth, as I expect there is, it's going to come about largely because of a very, very sharp drop in investment. And that means that those sectors of the world economy that have depended on very high Chinese investment most specifically the um, non-food commodity sector. Um, uh, um, you know, China uh, uh, absorbs something like 50% of global demand for iron ore and for cement and things like that. If there is a significant slowdown in Chinese investment, there will be a significant reduction in demand for those commodities, for non-food uh, commodities. And uh, for countries like Australia, I think that's going to be especially painful. Michael, thank you for sharing your thoughts on China. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the CFA Institute Take 15 series. Copyright 2011 CFA Institute.
No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.